Amen. Well, hello, church. If you would open to Luke 22, Luke chapter 22. This is God's Word. I'm going to pick up in verse 14 and read through verse 20. Luke chapter 22. When the hour came, he reclined at table with the apostles with him, and he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat the Passover with you before I suffer, for I will not eat it until... It is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this, divide it among yourselves, for I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this and remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup, after they had eaten, saying, this cup is poured out for you, is the new covenant in my blood. So Father, we ask that You would send the great Teacher, the Teacher, the Holy Spirit, to guide us into these words that You spoke the night of Your crucifixion as You instituted this supper. Give us understanding and help us to honor You at this table that You ordained and commanded and called us to partake in. And so, Father, we pray that You would do these things for our good and for Your name's sake. Amen. Well, as uh, you all know, last week we finished... Uh, a short series on Baptist covenantalism and our children. And uh, before we get back to, into the Gospel of John, which we will do soon, I told Pastor Ken on Tuesday, we were talking, and I said, man, it would, be really, it would flow really nicely out of this past series, we talked about baptism a lot, uh, to talk about the Lord's Supper. And um, I, I am always burdened in a good way, uh, a pastoral way, I, I hope, that this supper would be more and more meaningful for us um, since we take it every week, especially. And, uh, you know, some people say, well, well, Pastor, if you want it to be more meaningful, maybe don't take it every week. <laughs> I've actually heard that's been said to me quite a few times. And, um, and my response is, it, should we not preach every week? What about singing? Should we not pray every week? Do we read our Bible every day? Um, and so what we don't want to do is just because we do something often, act as if it can't be meaningful for us. Um, but we do need to study it, probably more than some churches, just because we, we take this uh, so often. This, has been, this is very meaningful to me. I'm, I'm sure many of you who've been at the church for some time now, you know, 14 years I've been taking this every week, minus when we go out of town. Um, so we did that nine-week sabbatical a few years ago that the church gave me. We're driving around uh, all over the country visiting mentors and friends, and we're, I'm on websites looking for churches for us to worship with, and I'm, I've got two criteria. Uh, do they explicitly preach the gospel, and do they take the Lord's Supper? 
Because that, now if I'm going to join those churches, I'm going to look for a little more than that. But for one week, worshiping with them, that's what I wanted for me and my family. And, um, you know, it was tough in Brazil last month because uh, none of the churches gave the Lord's Supper. And, um, and so we went a month without it. And, uh, and, and I was thinking even this week how COVID, you know, 2020, the lockdowns, that was a, that was a blink of an eye for our, for our church. Um, we were quickly gathered together again. But even a few weeks not gathering and taking the Lord's Supper, uh, a few of you came to me and said, no offense, pastor, but the thing I missed most was coming to the table, uh, not the preaching, which I'm not offended at at all. Uh, I, I really like that that's how we, we view this supper. Um, we, we love, we're a church that loves the ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper. Unashamedly, uh, we, we love these things. And I've just never had anybody say to me, you know, can we not do that anymore? The baptisms is not encouraging. Right? And I've never had anyone say to me, Pastor, can we stop taking the Lord's Supper? It's just not encouraging. Um, we love this, and, and I think to the degree in which we understand it, we will more and more. Now, I, I'm saying ordinances, and I don't want to uh, make assumptions that, that everybody understands what that means. Why do we say ordinances? And, and the, the reason is, is because Christ ordained that we take the supper and that we baptize and he only gave two ordinances, although some have tried to include foot washing and some other things. Uh, it seems quite clear to most Christians throughout history there are two. And Jesus, we just read this together in Matthew twenty-eight eighteen, said, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, therefore go and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And then we know right after he gave that commission, the early church uh, receives the Spirit, goes out and preaches, and, sa- and Peter says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, for the forgiveness of your sins, you receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And then it says, all who received his word were baptized, and 3,000 were added that day, baptism being the way they're added to the church. They're added to the church, and then as soon as they begin to gather as a church, Verse 42 of Acts chapter 2, it says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, that's the Bible, to the fellowship, which is more than just talking to people after the service for five minutes, although that's great, the prayers and the breaking of bread. The breaking of bread. What is that? Well, I've argued many times uh, that this is the Lord's Supper. Verse 46, it says they're breaking bread in their homes. I think that's something different. When it says the breaking of bread at the, at the front of that verse, I think that is talking about the Lord's Supper. I'm not going to go over all the reasons for that right now. Um, Acts uh, 20 verse 7 is significant. Where it says on the first day of the week, when they were gathered together to break bread. So they gathered together on Sunday, on the Lord's Day, the early church, to break bread. I don't think just to eat a meal, to take the Lord's Supper. And it says that Paul was preaching till late in the night. We know the boy fell out of the window and and, and a resurrection happens. Amazing thing. But they get together on the Lord's Day for two reasons. Hear a sermon, a really, really long sermon until midnight and take the supper. 
That was a priority in the early church. And, and so I, I just want to put our attention to Acts 2.42. It says they devoted themselves to the Lord's Supper. Which is not a conclusive argument, but a good argument to take it every week. They devoted themselves to corporate prayer, apostles' teaching, fellowship, and the Lord's Supper. And I, and I don't think they did it as some sort of legalistic rule, but as an efficacious, transformative means of grace. That's next week. I'm going to go there next week and explain that. But uh, we also know that they devoted themselves to the supper as an act of obedience. And, and some of y'all are nerdy like me. You like theological words that kind of encapsulate biblical ideas. Um, regulative principle is, a, is a, something to remember. Um, Christians have asked the question, when the church gathers on the Lord's Day like this, do we just have freedom to worship God however we want? You know, assuming our hearts are good and we read a few verses and we say Jesus' name a lot, we basically have freedom to do what we want when we gather or does God actually tell us how he wants us to worship him? And the answer that our church gives is he actually tells us how he wants us to worship him. And he wants us to worship him through a proclamation of the word. He wants us to worship him uh, through prayers of confession, through corporate prayer. Uh, through fellowship, through the breaking of bread, through baptism, and all of these things, the public reading of Scripture. All the things we do in a service, we're just doing that out of obedience. We're not trying to add our own uh, spin to any of that. We're we're seeking to uh, worship God as He wants to be worshipped. And even the order, I try to pay attention to. Is there a certain order in which we're to worship God? I, I found out some of the Puritan churches would have a sermon, and then they would take the Lord's Supper, and then they would say a prayer, and then a hymn. And and that's not encouraging just because we're like the Puritans. Why that's encouraging is because the Puritans were like Jesus. Jesus, in uh, in the upper room discourse, he gives a sermon, pretty long one, and then he institutes the supper, and then he prays a prayer, and then it says they sang a hymn. So it's encouraging. We're, we're, we're following in the pattern uh, of Scripture. We're doing uh, what Christ told us to do. Guys, it, it is tragic that if you ask many Christians, what has brought about more spiritual growth in your life? Christian journaling or the Lord's Supper? I fear many Christians would say Christian journaling. Um. Nothing against Christian journaling or, you know, devotional journaling or whatever you want to call it. Nothing against that. Um, But man, I hope that in the next week and then this week and next week, God would do something in you so that you would not say journaling has been more formative for me, uh, but the Lord's Supper. On the night Jesus was handed over to death, he, he said this, take, eat. He didn't say, find a paper and pen and journal. He's approaching death hours before his death, and and he teaches them, and then he gives them the supper and says, take and eat, 
They sing a hymn, they pray, and he goes to die. That's not insignificant. It's very significant. And this isn't any kind of high-level theology we're doing here. We're just saying, all I'm trying to say is what Christ did and told us to do should matter more to us than things he didn't tell us to do. Right? Let's, let's prioritize baptism and the Lord's Supper because Christ ordained these things, commanded these things, uh, modeled these things for us, and we want to lean heavy into what he did. So this week, I want to talk about the Lord's Supper as a sign uh, to emphasize what we do when we come to the table. And then next week, we'll talk about the Lord's Supper as a seal. And I want to mainly emphasize what God does when we take this. And I get those two categories from the Second London Baptist Confession. That's our elder confession of faith. Um, It uses words like represented, signified, exhibited. That's what we do when we come to the table. That's what we'll talk about this week. Um, And then it also uses sealed, conferred, applied on what God's doing when we come to the table. And so our early Baptist forefathers saw something more than just something we do, but God is doing something in this. Uh, One of the early catechisms, Baptist catechisms, uh, Charles Spurgeon popularized this one, but they would ask their kids this question, what are the sacraments or ordinances? And the kids would say, they are visible, holy signs and seals instituted by God so that by use of them, he might make us understand more clearly the promise of the gospel and seal that promise. That's what the kids would say. I'm just giving us some Baptist history there. Um, and, 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 but I'll follow it by saying this, uh, who cares what the Baptist forefathers said or the Puritans or the reformers? Um, I don't say that because our confidence needs to rest in these men. Uh, I say this so you don't think I'm coming up with this this week in my study as if I'm the first person to see this stuff and, and hopefully we can see that many before us have also seen these things. But if, if I put the word sign and seal before you, and then you look at the Bible and you go, I don't see it, then go, okay, I think the Puritans and the Reformers and our forefathers, I think they were wrong about that. But if you look in the Bible and you do see it, then, then do it. But not because they do it, do it because the Bible teaches it. All right, here's where we need to start. Luke 22 um, if we could go there, there's obviously uh, in Matthew, Mark, and in John, there's a, an account of the Lord's Supper, but also in Luke. Verse 14, when the hour had come, he reclined at table and the apostles with him, and he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God, And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves, for I tell you, from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. So that's why we drink first. There's an order to that. Jesus laid out the order. The cup comes first. And then he took bread, verse 19, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them and said, This is my body, which is given for you. 
So we could get into uh, the fruit of the vine that uh, the, 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 the drink is called a fruit of the vine there. Therefore, we have permission to drink grape juice, although wine would be ideal. But I don't want to get into controversial <laughs> matters right now. And so we'll leave it at that. You can discuss it among yourselves. Um, I want to say what is clearly here, what Jesus is clearly saying. He says this, this is my body. And, and some of you who know church history go, how, are you, how is that not controversial? People tried to kill each other over those words. This is my body. And what, what Jesus meant by that. And I say it's not controversial because I'm meaning in this room. I don't think there's a lot of disagreement as to what Christ means in this room regarding this is my body. I don't think we, many of us, believe that he's literally meaning that that is his blood in the little cup and that the, that the bread is actually his physical body. I don't think there's a lot of debate in this church about that. I think we would say it represents. It's like if I, uh, if I pull out a picture uh, an actual photograph, we don't have many of these, we have some on our wall in our house, and I say, look, it's me. You don't go, really, you think you're that small? And then made of paper, paper and ink? You know, that's not how you understand that. You understand that it represents me. It isn't actually me, right? That's how most of us would understand uh, what Jesus is saying here. This is how, again, the second London Baptist uh, they said that the bread and the wine represent the body and blood. The bread and the wine signify and symbolize the body and blood. The bread and the wine exhibit, proclaim, and bring to remembrance the body and the blood. And so there's, there's two ditches we need to be careful of when we're talking about the Lord's Supper. And I want to keep us from either of these. Uh, one would be the Catholic transubstantiation view or the Lutheran consubstantiation view. That's a ditch. That's when you read it very, very, very literally, where it actually is the blood and the body, although Catholic and Lutheran, obviously, those are different beliefs, but it's very literal reading. The other ditch would be what's often called the Zwingling view. And that's a very symbolic way to read it, um, that this is, meta, this is uh, metaphorical, it's ceremonial, it's symbolic, it's mem memorializing, and I think to only say the supper is that is also falling short of what the Scripture teaches. Now, let me, uh, let me make clear, though, this is a symbol, all right? We, we certainly wouldn't want to say it isn't. It is a symbol. It is symbolizing something in the same way uh, that in the Old Covenant, the Passover meal was a symbol, Right? So God gave the Passover through Moses to Israel and said, when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? You shall say, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. For he passed over the houses of the people of uh, Egypt when he struck the Egyptians, but spared our houses. So that was an old covenant ceremonial sign that was meant to raise questions in the minds of the kids, to raise questions in the minds of anyone else who would see them taking the Passover and say, why are you doing that? What does that represent? And they would give an answer. In the same way, this is a sign so that as we're taking this every week, our children go, what, why? Why drink the, the little cup? Why eat the little bread? What do, what do we, why do we do this? And then you get to tell them. 
right? Or, or someone who's not a believer that comes in here, they would, it would provoke questions that we could give answers to that would lead straight to the gospel. Uh, that is the point. Now, it, it really saddens me something uh, that I saw a few years ago. Um, it was a friend, uh, someone I was close to at the time, uh, really believed the Passover was a superior meal to the Lord's Supper. Um, and so this person was super excited. The Passover, it's so amazing. You know, it, it just it d- depicts the gospel so clearly. And I said, so we're getting more excited about the shadow than the substance? You know, because Christ... Christ was quite clear what he was doing in the Passover meal. That last Passover, which became the first Lord's Supper, he, he's transitioning something here from the old to the new. And, and, and this man was very into the, this idea of the Passover. And I reminded him of Colossians 2, 16, which says the food and drink or a festival, that could be a Passover, or a new moon, or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. So you say, well, is it wrong to take the Passover as a Christian? I get that the Lord's Supper, maybe that's a better picture of the gospel, but the Passover, certainly it would be okay for a Christian to take the Passover. And I would say this, it's wrong to take the Passover as a Christian if you think it's Christian. Okay? We would say, that's Jewish. It had meaning and significance in the Old Covenant. It does no more. So if you take the, if you take the Passover and you go, uh, we're going to take the Passover, but this does not have any spiritual significance. This is like walking through a museum and looking at things that once had spiritual significance, but now have none. Then fine, take, take the Passover. But if, if you think that you're pleasing God by taking the Passover, you're misunderstanding what Jesus is doing on the night before his death. He says the old covenant meal of the Passover has transitioned. I want you disciples to, to not just take this Passover, but now do this in remembrance of me. Take these elements for this reason. And he transitions the old covenant meal to a new covenant meal. That's happening. And I think it, it, it greatly matters. In the old covenant, the wine they drank represented the, the blood put over their doorposts when they were to put blood over the doorpost so that the angel of death would come and it would pass over their house, the wine represented that. And then they would eat unleavened bread. Why would they eat unleavened bread? Because whenever they had to quickly flee and get out of Egypt before the the judgment of God came, they had to go so quickly, the bread didn't have time to leaven. And those things mattered because they were connected to the Old Covenant and God's salvation of Israel in Egypt. And so what I'm saying is that when Jesus is sitting at the table, you know, picture this. He's sitting at the table. They're eating the Passover. It all had spiritual significance. Jesus isn't going, okay, how do I illustrate the New Covenant? You know, oh, the wine. That It kind of looks like blood. It's like the same color. So... You know, I'm going to say something about that, and then the bread we just broke, and I'm about, my body's about to break on the cross, so I'll, 
I'm going to mention something about that. That's not what's happening. That's not what's happening. Verse 20 says, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. He's saying the blood is a sign and seal of the efficacy of the new covenant that I'm making with you. Not animal blood. My blood that's about to be poured out on the cross. The wine represents that. Not blood over the doorposts when God delivered Israel from Egypt. The blood, the drink, symbolizes something different in the new covenant. And the same with the bread. Look at verse 19. He took bread when he had given thanks. He broke it and gave it to them saying, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Um, when we, some of y'all who helped us renovate this building, remember that there used to be a communion table here that said that. Do this in remembrance of me. And it had it carved into the table. And obviously we're, we're not using that table anymore. Um, little side note here. Any of you brothers who are filled with the, uh, the spirit and the skill of carpentry who might want to carve us a new table, I would say, please do right, do this in remembrance of me, on it. I think every church in the South has to have that. We're not really a church, you know. It needs to say that on there. Um, Some churches, though, should erase portions of that. Because even though Christ said, do this in remembrance of me, in many churches, they're not doing it in remembrance of Christ. They should actually cut out and, and knock out that last word, me, and say, do this in remembrance of you. Because when they come down here or sit in the seat before they take it, all they think about is me, meaning them. How bad they failed, how far they didn't measure up, all the bad things they did that week. It's a, a guilt-inflicting time to think about me, not Christ. Some people, some churches should just mark out um, in remembrance of me and just keep do it <laughs> or take it or, uh, because that's all that they just mindlessly walk up here, just take it, just put it in your mouth, drink it. Don't think about anything. But what does Jesus say? Do this in remembrance of me. And I, I don't want to insult anyone's intelligence. Uh, please don't take it this way, but I think it's helpful sometimes to just slow down a verse and think through every word. Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me. And the word remembrance is a very unusual word in the New Testament. It's only used three times. One is in Luke twenty two nineteen right here. One is in First Corinthians eleven twenty four, and the other is in Hebrews ten, verse three. And if you would go to Hebrews ten, verse three quickly, I'm going to read the context for a second because anamnesis is the word anamnesis. Remember, and it shows up here in verse three. He says, since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, 
instead of the true form of the realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, they would have they would have not have ceased to have been offered since the worshipers, having been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sin. Now here it is. But in these sacrifices, there is a anamnesis, a reminder of what? Sin. Every year. Under the old covenant, there was an anamnesis, a reminder of sin. Built into the Old Covenant. You were to think about sin. That's why the same sacrifices are, are continually offered every year and, and because they couldn't make clear the consciences of the worshipers because the worshipers knew, we need more sacrifices. We need more blood. That animal ain't going to do it. Or this one, or this one, or this one, or this one. We're going to need more blood, more bodies, more carcasses. Because there's more sin and it's not dealing sufficiently with our sins. It's an anamnesis of sin. Then Jesus says, but this new covenant in my blood is not an anamnesis of sin. It is a reminder of the sin bearer. Do this in remembrance of me, not sin. That's the old covenant. The old covenant was a reminder of sin. The new covenant is a reminder of the Savior. So that when we come to the table, we are remembering all of my sins are forgiven. All of them. And the kindness of the Lord in that reminder leads us to repentance. Beholding the glory of the Lord in that reminder transforms us so that we put off sin and live for righteousness that next week. Something's happening as we not just inflict guilt upon ourselves at the table for five minutes every week, but as we come to the table and think about Christ bearing our sins in His body on the tree once and for all. No need for other sacrifices. That does something to us at a profound level. Jesus says, do this not in remembrance of your sin, but in remembrance of me. And that's why we call this a gospel ordinance. You think about the gospel. You think about what Christ has done. You get thankful and grateful for the gospel every week and that begins to liberate and transform you Motivate you for love and good works. Purify your heart. And guys, I know that, you know, we struggle. Should, should I take the supper? What if my week was really bad and I, I just really screwed up? Even on the way to church, I did this and this. Should I, is it even safe? Because, look, I'm not naive to 1 Corinthians 11. We'll get there next week. Some of y'all are waiting for me. To, are you going to mention the fact that some people are dying because they're taking the supper in an unworthy manner. That's why we're sitting here thinking about our sin, Pastor. We're not, it's not that we don't want to think about Jesus, but we just don't, don't want to die because we're taking the supper in an unworthy manner or get sick or something, right? We'll get to 1 Corinthians chapter 11 next week. 
But let me make sure we remember the context. Why are they, they're getting drunk at the table. Okay, Paul said to this church, when you get together, it actually accomplishes more bad and sin than righteousness. All right, this church was horribly unhealthy. And so, of course, they needed to examine themselves before they came to the table. There were, many of them were living in unrepentant sin. He says in the second letter, test yourself to even see if you're in the faith. There's, a, there's certainly a time of testing and a, and, a, and a time of examination. But look, guys, nobody comes to this table with a perfect week under their belt. You know, no, nobody comes to this table with a successful week. Nobody brings that to the table. We're all going to question our devotion to the Lord, our zeal for the Lord, how, uh, how obedient we've been to the Lord that week. We're going to question words we've said. Uh, James says, nobody tames the tongue. It's a restless evil. We've all said things we regret that week. Who, who legitimately could come and take this every week having not said something wrong? Nobody. We'd all just be sitting there every week, just staring at it, going, man, it would be nice to take that, but I'm too scared. Which, actually, there are churches in the Netherlands, Reformed churches, that they give the Lord's Supper. I've heard stories about this, haven't been to these. Um, But they give the Lord's Supper weekly, and out of a service of about 100, 150 people, about 12 or 15 would actually come down and take it. Because they're all so terrified that they would take it wrongly. Is that what Christ is intending here? Is that how the early church devoted themselves to the breaking of bread and took it? All the time? Because only a few minority who had a really great week were actually able to come. Is that really how this is supposed to work? I don't think so. We're to do this in remembrance of Christ. We build into the service. We have a time of confession early on in the service. Deal with your sin then. Ideally, before you even come here. So that when you get to the table, you can mainly do it in remembrance of Him. Free your conscience earlier so that you can really rejoice when you come down here. Listen to John Williamson. Is 16, uh, in, well, it was the 17th century he said this in talking about partaking of the Lord's Supper and remembering Christ. He says, we do it full of awe and reverence, hating our sins, but being thankful and trusting Christ for our full justification." He said, our hearts should even burn with affection to him when we remember the great floods of wrath that broke upon his soul and yet could not drown his love toward us. Think of your sin and then think of what he did on the cross for it and then come and rejoice. That's what Christ wants us to do. Do it in remembrance of me thinking of my body and blood. And again, I'm going to talk about this more next week, but when you hold that drink and that bread as real as they are in your hand, none of us here would go, is this really, am I really holding something here? Am I touching something? As real as that is, let that realness of those elements remind you, my sin was really paid for on the cross. What Christ did on the cross really dealt with my sin as real as these things are in me right now. 
as real as I'm putting it in my body, he has forgiven my sin. So let me close because I don't want to talk about this. I want to take it uh, together. Next week we'll come back and and we we do need to think through what God does when we take this. Because I would, I would suspect that there's some in this church, you've never thought about what God is doing when you take this. Your mind is very much on Christ and, and, and 2,000 years ago, or yourself. And you aren't thinking about what God is doing when you take this. I want to study that next week. But right now, we need to think about what we do when we remember. And when we remember, it says we proclaim. And there was a popular preacher uh, a few years ago, Protestant evangelical preacher, very popular actually. If I said his name, probably almost everybody here would would know who I'm talking about. He shifted his view on a few issues, but on on the Lord's Supper in particular, and and now holds a more Catholic, uh, Eastern Orthodox view of the Lord's Supper. And one of the things that he was saying was that through, through most of church history, You didn't have a pulpit centered in a room like this. He would say you had the Lord's Supper in the middle of the room. And so that type of argument led him into some kind of medieval uh, Catholic or Eastern Orthodox type practices. Now, there's some truth in what he's saying. Uh, The the church for many years, he's right, for many years, uh, the pulpit was not central in a, a church gathering, but the mass was, the Eucharist. Well, why would that be? Well, because they believed that when you actually put this in your body, you're putting Christ in you in a saving way. Of course you centralize it if you believe that. Right? Somebody random walks off the street and eats this? They could, I I mean, the, the fact that we can be saved over and over again, Christ crucified over and over again, forgiving us, I mean, of course you centralize it if you have that view. Obviously, we we believe that's horribly wrong for many biblical reasons, but that's why they centered it. And so the reason I bring this up is because it's interesting. Why would in the Protestant Reformation they begin to put the pulpit in the center of a room like a, a Protestant church building? Why would the pulpit be central? Because they believed that this book must be proclaimed. God must be heard. His voice must be heard. And so the reading of Scripture, the preaching of Scripture is the central thing because God saves through the Word. That's what Protestants are doing. Now, here's what, I'm, here's what I want to point out. Where is that in this room? The baptismal. Whoever designed this building, they put the baptismal right behind the pulpit in the middle. Why? Because that's a preaching ordinance. It preaches the gospel. Baptism is a proclamation of the gospel. What about this? We put this right here. I don't want this thing out of here over on the side or off in a closet. I want it right here. Why? Because it's preaching. This, the Puritans called this a visible word. They called it a gospel proclamation. And in fact, Jesus did. He said, as often as you take this, you proclaim My death until I come. Well, actually, Paul said that about it. You proclaim this as often as you take it until he returns.
Um, so let me just walk us into the, the table. If you're new, um, this table is for believers as we understand Scripture. Um, if you have not received Christ by faith, followed in baptism, and are committed to a church, the table's not for you. Uh, I want this, we want this to be a meaningful time for you. In your bulletin, there's prayers actually that are printed in there that you could read while we're taking the supper, and that can be a meaningful thing for you. Um, and brothers and sisters who have Christ, who have followed through baptism, please prepare your hearts to come and remember Christ's words when he said, do this in remembrance of me. Take a few moments and pray, and I'll pray for us now. Father, Lord, this is nothing if you didn't go to the cross and die for sin. This is an insignificant, meaningless practice. Just religion, dead. But you did die on the cross. Your blood was spilled. Your body was broken. And because that really happened, and you told us to take this in remembrance of it so that we could keep proclaiming it until you come again, Lord, deepen our love for you. Help us to see more clearly your love for us as we take this. And we pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Take a few moments and pray and we'll prepare ourselves to come take the supper.